and welcome to the Cultcast, where we talk to winemakers, wine growers, wine lovers, and wine slingers. So we are here at Glass talking to Jonathan Brooks um, about his new project. Um, Jonathan, good afternoon. Hi, Jules. Good afternoon. Welcome um, to Glass. Thank you. Yeah, nice it's, it's really it's really nice to be here. So you guys have been open what three or four weeks now? Uh, this is week five. Week five. Oh wow, week it's five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, start off, tell us about Glass and, and what what it is and why yeah. people should come down and see you. Yeah. Uh, so, hopefully people come to see us because we've got delicious wine and food. That's yeah. principally it. And good times. Um, Glass is, I guess, a natural wine bar and bistro. Um, so, we're open ridiculously long hours, at least it seems the way to me at the moment. Um, so, from 7am, we're serving coffee, people's coffee. Um, and then you can come in. Everything is made in-house um, from first thing in the morning till the end of the evening. Um, you can come in at lunchtime. We have a really nice short menu, um, so nice quick lunch. And then in the evenings is really, really hit our stride, um, serving natural wine. So broadly speaking, natural wine. Yep. So, so what's your... Uh, so when you say natural wine, because um, obviously there's a lot of... People take it to mean lots of different things. So what, when you say natural wine, what do you mean? Yeah, so a pretty broad church. Um, so organic at, at the base. Yep. Like that's an absolute kind of requirement and necessity. Um, and then, yeah, most of our wines, the winemakers are intervening little, very little in the winemaking process in terms of like mechanical and chemical yep. intervention. Um, but I guess, I mean, for me, organics and biodynamics, kind of where I learned my trade um, was just a but eventually became just a byword for, for quality because everyone from the most kind of out there hippie winemakers making the strangest wines you can imagine in the Loire Valley for no money yeah. um, to the men in Burgundy making wines that are costing $1,000 a bottle yeah. are working with biodynamics. Um, some people might like to shout about it. Some people don't care less to talk about it. It's not right. They're, they're doing it. I mean, that's eventually what I learned was that... Um, however convinced you are or not by um, biodynamic and natural winemaking processes. People who have been making wine for a really long time have decided to convert to these processes because for them, if you ask them why they do it, the principal thing is that they've got great fruit and they're making better wine. Yeah. And, that's and, all, and that's all that matters. That's what, it, that's what the whole industry is for, is to have something delicious in your glass and a good time. And particularly in regards to biodynamics, um, yeah. like the, the results speak for themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so, as well as the bar, you you import your yeah. own wine? Yeah. Um, so, from France at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So, why, why import as well as run sort of a hospitality business? Um, so, that's probably just reflective of my background, specifically. So, I really learnt my trades. I'm a Kiwi, obviously, but I really learnt my trade overseas um, in Paris, principally. Um, so, I was there for seven years, started off working in a wine shop part-time, moved into managing that wine shop, um, which was a, a really great place. I just got really lucky and kind of bluffed my way into what turned out to be an amazing position. What shop was that? It's called La Dernia Goutte. It's um, in uh, Saint-Germain-de-Prés, in the sixth arrondissement of, um, of Paris. And then a couple of years there and ended up managing it and also doing night work at um, a um, bistro with an amazing wine list that the same person people owned. Uh, and, event, and then from there I moved into um, another a restaurant, which was, I guess, more high-end, if you like, um, tasting menu-only restaurant and doing 
their wine and wine pairings and managing that place for a couple of years. That was called Ferjou, uh, which is in the centre of Paris as well. And so what brought you back to New Zealand? Ah, so a combination of things. Um, we visited... Um, we visited... This is you and your wife? Yeah, Emily and I came back in 2015 um, with our son. So that was his first visit to New Zealand. He was born over there. Um, and just had a really great time. We went to Central Otago and saw some really cool things and just saw cool things happening with wine and food and thought, oh, maybe, you know, we'll give it a shot one day. Um, and then the second lot of terrorist attacks, there was two terrorist attacks in Paris within about a year, about 18 months of each other. Um, the first lot um, were at Charlie Hebdo, and that was about 200 metres south of our apartment. Oh, like, like literally right, there. right on your doorstep? Right there, like we could hear gunshots. Um, and then the second lot, which were much more tragic, um, principally centred on a place called the Bataclan, which is a, a gig venue, a concert venue, yeah. um, where there was 80 people murdered, and that was about 200 metres north of our apartment. So although we definitely didn't run away scared, um, it did have an effect on especially Emily's job. She was um, editing a food and restaurant and wine website based on Parisian restaurants, but was targeting a foreign clientele, an yep. English-speaking clientele. And obviously and tourism. their money came from tourists. Yep. And I think that, so they ran like um, guided tours yep. through these places. Um, and I think they lost something like 120,000 euros in one day of cancellations. Wow. So she effectively got made redundant. Yep. Um, and we had the choice whether we go through a whole process of finding a new job, new visa, etc. for her, um, or we're going to have a shot at New Zealand at some time, let's do it now. So, came back two years ago. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And and so, when you came back, you were working at Whitebait? Yeah, so I got the job at Whitebait before I came back, so I was at Whitebait, and then for the last nine months or so, I was um, working at Whitebait and Charlie Noble yep. as an operations manager. Um, so, that was really good, because I got to learn... So, like I said, I learned my trade Had you front, worked, so had totally you worked HOSPO in New Zealand before you oh, I'd worked, like, part-time... You'd polished glasses, university you'd student. done dishes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'd wait tables and yeah. had, a, had a complete amateur interest in wine, but nothing. Because obviously, like, HOSPO or restaurants in, in Europe, and even the retail trade, mm. even varying from, like, we were just talk, I was talking with one of your staff about how amazing Melbourne is in regards to having all these really cool little hybrid shop bars yeah. that we're not allowed to have yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. And so even even just over the dish. Which sucks, by the way. But was, yeah, which does suck. Um, <laughs> um, but even just, just in Australia, which is only two hours away, the whole hospitality ecosystem is, yeah. is really different. I would imagine even uh, more so in yeah. a city like Paris. So it's what's... Massively different. What are the things that are like... That, that stand out as being either things in Paris that, that are really, really, really exciting and really done in a way that you think is really cool. Yeah. Um, but then on the other, other hand, are there things that, that we in New Zealand generally do better as well? Yeah, so I think that things that are done really well is that it's, there's, um, there's a real level of appreciation from clientele for your expertise. So if you've worked in a good place and you're kind of in your stripes, then what we do is recognise as a serious trade. Yeah. And so you get people who might be really knowledgeable about wine, but they'll come into the shop and instead of telling you what they want or being put off when you suggest something, if you suggest something, they'll take it every time. Yeah, yeah because as could... soon as you win their confidence, you get that over and over and over. And I... they'll ask you penetrating questions. Yeah. And um, I guess, you know, I often think it's the same 
when, how foreigners come here who love rugby and they say, oh, you know, I, get, I, I speak to someone about rugby and, like, the level of expertise is amazing. You kind of have that general culture around you. Yeah. So that's really cool. We're here in New Zealand, a lot of those consumers, um, and, I mean, I've had this for, for years working in some, like, pretty cool, more formal restaurants, is that they almost come into a restaurant or, or, a, or a wine experience and want to show you how much they know. Um, and, and certainly, like, most wine professionals will say, like, whether, whether you're a generalist who's gone through, say, um, part of the Court of Master Sommeliers or, yeah. or WSCT, or if you're a specialist who's got a really deep love of a particular couple of regions or something like that, I mean, I think all of us will acknowledge that, that yeah. there are people who know a hell of a lot more about wine than, than us or about particular wine or, or yeah. vice versa. But it seems that, like, in New Zealand, quite a lot of wine lovers will come in and try and show you how much yeah. they know rather yeah. than rather than be interested in in a different perspective on wine. Yeah, I think so. And I think that there's a kind of um, I mean this is probably all over the wine world but um, there's an attitude which is that the knowledge itself is somehow valuable that it shows that you're I don't know that having expertise is yeah. something important. Whereas for me like you can have the, the people I've met who are the best the best people I've met in the industry in, in Paris so people who are globally recognised as having done something important never wear their knowledge of wine as a badge they have it to help sometimes people. quite literally to, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yes you're right yeah, they don't um, they have it so that they can help people enjoy themselves yeah. so they've learnt about something they love and they know it deeply and they have a, a lifestyle that is their, their job where they deal with people who make wine who are extremely passionate about it and can relate to them really well. And also with consumers, you know, they can help those people make those connections. And it's all about having a good time. Like, if that's, that's probably the, the single biggest bit of advice I got early on was wine is for enjoying yourself. And if you've lost track of that, then, like, you're lost. Yeah, and obviously, as you said earlier, particularly in Europe, but especially in Paris, um, hospitality is a profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you don't have that... That I mean, obviously, you you learnt your trade over there, so it's different, but here in New Zealand, like, I worked with so many really, really amazing people, and actually, I was one of them for a time and came back to it. But you, you hit a wall where you can't really... Well, there are only a handful of jobs yeah. that are sufficient to have the things that are normal, like a family, and yeah, or, yeah, and, yeah. and those those sorts of things. That's so, true. so there's only a handful of places in, in Wellington, or even in the whole of New Zealand, where, where that can offer that level of professionalism. Yeah. So you either go into your own business, yeah, or you you get out of the business. And I mean, a lot of people, like I know a lot of amazing hospitality people who are. Everything from HR managers and consultants to real estate agents and and everything in between because it's often like the skills you learn in hospitality. Yeah, absolutely. That that translate into those people focused jobs. Oh man, it's such a skills job. Like I, I can I can clearly remember the first time I sat down when I when I got to I got to Virgil and they they didn't have some super I mean high level service but in a kind of relaxed way and yeah. that it was a very fresh contemporary style of restaurant 
and I did a order of service and wrote down everything that we do. And it came to 14 single-spaced A4 page, yeah. typed pages. And then I was thinking, those are just the, the steps that we take. And then there's all the intuition that goes into it. And it's, it's a massively skilled job. But it's also a range and people, of... And there's so few people who are actually very good at it. Like, having employed a lot of them, yeah. um, there's people who can do it. But people who are truly good at it are very rare and because, very smart. Because, but you also have to love... Yeah. Making people happy, yeah, yeah and you have to be patient. Yeah, I mean, and, and also like this because otherwise, why would someone smart work for this much money? Yeah, <laughs> well, with this little money. Um, so, talking about the wine that you bring into New Zealand, yeah, we didn't get round. To yeah, that. we didn't we didn't talk about that. So, so those were uh, so all of the wines that I bring in are basically from friends who are winemakers who I met over there. Yeah, um, and when I was over there, so. Um, it was always an idea to do that. Like that was kind of part of the deal of, of when we were coming home that we made with ourselves is that we would open our own business. Yeah. And that was always going to be part of it. Um, so yeah, so we import uh, the first lot. We imported from about ten different winemakers from all around the country, all around France. Um, yeah, and all people that we met. That was again the very first job I got. We would have some of the the country's best winemakers. Um, there every Saturday we'd have two or three winemakers in store pouring wine just pouring wine for our customers yeah. um, and then you know as I grew up the ranks I got to go and have lunch and dinner with them spend more time with them visit so their states visit, the, visit their places um, and so yeah it just is a natural extension of that and really nice for us to to feel like even though New Zealand is half a world away from from that life um that's still part of our lives. So in terms of the style, or in terms of the types of wines that you're bringing in, do you have sort of a particular idea of what you're after? Are you, like, for, so for instance, with the Australian wines that we import, we're emphatically trying to bring in wines that, styles of wines and types of producers that can't, currently aren't represented. Because there's all sorts of, yeah. like, New Zealand's a small wine market. Yeah. And there's a lot of really great wine here already. Yeah. So it kind of doesn't make sense to compete with the other really awesome importers. So yeah. what, of the wines that you're bringing in, where do they kind of fit into the picture of, of, of wine coming into New Zealand? So I think, I mean, first, I'm, I'm never going to import from someone that's already been, with someone who's already yeah. been imported here. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and I think in terms of the style of the wine, all of them, so they're from all parts at the moment. We've got wine from the Loire to... Um, Corsica. Eventually, we'll have wine from Champagne and Jura that'll be next. Um, they're all wines, I think, that are really particular to the places that they're from. Um, they all have their own degree of refinement and quality, obviously, um, but they're all really um, unique to the places that they're from. Um, yeah, I mean, they all share kind of common ethics, I guess, in terms of the style of winemaking. Um, and what's your... If someone were to come in yeah. um, and say, just pour me a glass of wine, obviously you can ask them questions, but, but what's, your, what's your pick at the moment? What, what, what are those wines that you yeah, super so excited about? There's probably, on the list at the moment, probably my favourite wine is from Antoine Arena, who's a, a hero of Corsican winemaking, which basically is the godfather of modern Corsican So Because Corsica is... Um, that's an island. Yes, it is. And it's yeah. just above... French territory, yeah. Um... I'm trying to think of the Italian island that it's above. Um, Sardinia. Yes. So it's just above yeah, yeah, Sardinia. Yeah, yeah. Because um, they grow often the same varieties on Corsica and, and Sardinia. So, so, so on Corsica now, if you if it's red wine, it's predominantly going to be a grape called Neluccia. Yep. 
um, which is extremely hard to pronounce. Um, <laughs> um, it is very, very close to San Giovese. Yes. Um, so there's an, a common Italian root there. Um, and if it's white, it's generally Vermentino, or Vermentino, as they say on Corsica. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you have a couple of others. So there's Uni Blanc was grown there as well in, in less quantity. Um, and then there's a really interesting white varietal called, um, that's called Bianco Gentile. Um, so, like, friendly white, um, gentle white, um, which is a grape that was considered um, lost. It's native, it's only ever been found on Corsica, had been considered lost to Corsica, and then was found in what I think was the remains of a former grapevine nursery up in um, the mountains. So, like, basically growing wild? Growing wild, yeah. It had been left discarded, basically. And... Um, so that was found by a couple of winemakers. Antoine Arena was the first person to plant it. Yeah. So he planted half a hectare, and now I think there's four or five people. That was in 97, and now there's four or five winemakers on Corsica growing it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Corsican's a volcanic island? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so extremely mountainous. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's amazing. It's such a beautiful... It's so different to Vermentino. It's much more round, I guess... There's some similarity to Chardonnay, but a bit more aromatic and, and reflective of a Mediterranean climate. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating story, and now there's yeah, four or five people growing it. It's classified in the complicated French wine classification system as a Vin de France, which is your lowest quality wine, apparently. But, but there's a lot of really great oh, Vin de France. Tons, tons. And there's also and a lot of... especially in the last 20 years, there's been so many lost varietals and unusual styles of winemaking that have come back into, into vogue um, that weren't recognised when that system was created. Because obviously that's very, that, that element of reviving the cultural elements of wine is very much part of the, yeah. the natural wine world yeah. and, and the old world, and it's sort of can be overlooked here because obviously we don't have that yeah. that connection between culture and land and, and the expression of that. Yeah, I think that's in wine and, and as well as in food. I mean, um, like one of the aims at Glass is to try and, you know, eventually we'll work directly with um, small food producers, farmers who are doing things extremely well. I mean, whether they're small or large doesn't matter. If they're doing things they're doing, properly, yeah. that's all that really matters. Um, and sometimes scale is important. But it's tricky. I mean, in, in France, I worked at, you know, one place which would definitely be called a bistro, another place that would be called fine dining, if you like. The thing that was in common, you know, both great places, but the thing that they have in common that was most important was that the quality of the produce was just incredible. And you're, and you're buying it from a farmer who has very small holdings generally, and you, there's no one really in between. So you're able to get things for relatively good prices and get them on the menu. In New Zealand, we have to build that. Like, that's got to come from... I think that the restaurant hospitality scene really has to find those types of producers or people who are interested in that approach and support the hell out of them. And, and producers because, across the board, because obviously, it's to a degree, it's really easy to support a premium producer of cheese, yeah. meat, those yeah. sort of, like, um, yeah. hero products. Yeah. But then it's also really easy just to go buy le- leeks or potatoes from at, at the best price Exactly, yeah, and exactly. And it's, it's, it's very much about support. And finding a great gardener, like finding people who are growing amazing vegetables, I mean, that can be the, the life of a restaurant. That's, yeah. You don't need to have a concept, you know, or, or a complicated marketing strategy. If you, that, that, that's enough, yeah. like just having great produce. So what sort of um, 
food is coming out of the kitchen here? Well, because we're talking about food. Yeah. Uh, so at the moment, I mean, you can come and have great cheese, hero products, um, charcuterie, which at the moment we try as much as possible to use New Zealand charcuterie. So we've got Cristola from a lady butcher up in Auckland on at the moment, made with good Hawke's Bay Wagyu beef. Um, and then we have... That hasn't been on the feedlot? Probably, what's that? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's been eating grass. Um, and then uh, one of my favourite dishes at the moment is really super simple. Most things here are um, parsnips, which are coming kind of to the end of their season, which are just served with a balsamic dressing and a bit of rocket, and it's just super tasty. Oh, and some pine nuts. Um, so... Small plate like that. Um, what else? We have a. We always have a terrine or a pate on, which is usually made from the leftovers from something else that we've cooked, something yep, more major. We've got sense. amazing hanger steak on at the moment, uh, which is super simple. Well, that's like classic yeah, bistro food. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Classic bistro food, but we're trying to make sure that our products are really good and just keep everything bright and fresh and tasty and constantly changing. Like it's. You asking me that question was a. I had to stumble for a second because the, oh, the menu changes the menu all the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the idea that everything is like bright, fresh, tasty. Um, yeah. Um, going back to a question I asked a little bit earlier, are there things in New Zealand that we do that you think actually like the old world could learn from that? Yeah, I think that it's kind of two sides of the same coin in the sense that like I was kind of suggesting earlier that we don't really have those artisanal traditions as much in both in winemaking and in, in food production that the old world does. Um, which, you know, somehow can be a kind of negative thing because you don't find those products as easily. But at the same time, um, we also, when we come across these things as, I think, a colonial country, we adopt those things really quickly. So you meet some amazing people who have just decided to go out there and, like, reproduce these traditions. Um, or create traditions of our own. Or create, and at the same time, create traditions of our own, and, and in a way that's not um, encumbered by history and tradition and yeah. doing things in the correct way, necessarily. So wine-wise, um, in terms of New Zealand, New Zealand producers, like, are there... Are there things that you think are sort of happening that's really exciting? Like, obviously, yeah. obviously, 2015, when you came back the first time, you went, hey, there's some really interesting stuff happening. Yeah. And yeah. then three years on, yeah. that's only, like... Yeah. There's quadruple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that... Um, I think there's lots of exciting things happening, and I think you can kind of draw a line as well from top to bottom. Um, so you can look at something like Bell Hill, which for me are making just, like... Globally outstanding wines. Um, Pyramid Valley, really unique take um, on making kind of wines at that level as well. They're amazing, but, you know, but out of the reach of maybe most consumers. Yeah, and great, also great to have as a Christmas time bottle or something. I mean, they're amazing wines. But also, there's so both Bell Hill and Pyramid Valley. There's so little of those wines exactly. made. Yeah, that. Um, they are out of reach. Yeah, exactly. But, exactly. But unfortunately. And then you go to people like, uh, you've got, so if we stay in North Canterbury, you've got Black Estate, who for me, so I have been there a couple of times, but when I first got back and then just a few weeks ago before we opened this place, I think the wines are getting better and better and better, really pure and clean and expressions of the different sites that they own. And everything from really quite traditional, elegant, refined... Yeah 
too lo-fi crazy yeah and a good way I don't mean crazy in a bad way I mean yeah but crazy but still clean and beautiful but fun like the triple rosé you have on which is amazing yeah. and I think I've just run out of our, our allocation yeah but I mean like I, w- I was thinking about that one the other day nowhere else in the world would you put Pinot Cabernet Franc Riesling Chardonnay and Chenin together no but well, and especially when they're co-fermenting over a space yeah. of a couple of weeks, like it, it's wacky, but indeed the result is amazing. Yeah. And every the cool thing about that wine is that it's kind of got that cool wine geeky thing about it. Like I love it because it's super fresh and dry and clean, but everyone loves it. Yeah. Like my mum loves it. You know, corporate guys <laughs> coming in here for lunch love it. Um, so it's really cool. And then we just got in. Um, so again, North Canterbury. We just got in the Carbo Pinot from Eclipsis, which um, is beautiful, juicy, like very much in the kind of natural Beaujolais style. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I think you can see a line between all of those producers. Like, it's first these organics. Yeah. And the other thing is it's hard work, you know? It's hard work and it's relatively small production. Um, and I think that's one thing that I learned about wine in France was that you can't make great wine without kind of brutal, honest, hard work. Like, there's no real way around it. Um, like, places that are pushing huge yields of grapes and doing masses of tonnes off, off relatively small pieces of land are not making, for me, what are interesting wines. I mean, they're great at what they do, and that's cool. Yeah. Like, that's cool, and, and, and I'm sure that some of the money from that part of the industry trickles down to the rest, and people have gone through those big places to learn how to do stuff and maybe change their ways. Um... And certainly, like, if you look at, particularly in New Zealand, but also, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know as much about how this is happening in, in France, but certainly, like, it's happening in, in Italy, where you're seeing more and more big producers start adopting ideas, techniques, yeah. um, styles from, from organic, biodynamic, natural. Like, yeah. I mean, I just found out that Prosecco producer Ferrari, yeah. they've just gone organic. Yeah. And, and for, are forcing all of their growth. They've basically told their growers you need to be organic within X years. Yeah. Otherwise, we're not buying. Yeah, yeah. which is great. And I they're mean, a that's, big industrial producer. That, I mean, that should happen everywhere. It's a big political issue at the moment. But when I was in France in April, um, it had just been announced that um, Roundup would be banned um, so basically, you had to go organic. Yeah. And, at the, and that's since been overturned. But, oh, okay. Um, well, because that's, that's a will, lot. It will happen. Like, it's only been overturned by basically political lobbying. Yeah. Um, it's a European-wide um, law that I'm sure within the next 10 years is going to come into power. So it's good. Because that's, that's the line between organics and non-organics for a lot of farmers. Like, yeah. I, having been just over in, in, in Australia talking to some producers... Um, they're like, oh yeah, the grower uses a bit of Roundup, but that's pretty much all he does. And they're like, well, can you not get him to do that? Yeah, and exactly. Like, because I mean, like anywhere else in the world, there are some regions yeah. where there is a whole raft of organic producers and organic fruit available. Yeah. I mean, Canterbury is a great example. Yeah. Nelson's a great example. Even Central Otago because it's so dry. Yeah. Whereas. Um, and so, like, the Adelaide Hills, Riverland, McLaren Vale, those places seem to be seems to be a little bit easier to grow fruit yeah. organically, yeah. whereas Hawke's Bay, Martinborough... Yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to be tough. Yarra. Yeah. It, it, there's just... There doesn't seem to be 
as much organics there and I don't know whether it's a case of those places are just simply much harder to farm. I would say it's part of it, but I mean, if you can do it in the Loire Valley in Burgundy, yep. then, um, and you know, when you're doing it in Burgundy, you're taking a gigantic risk because the value of your property is enormous. Yeah. Um, you have to make wine. Um, if you can do it there, you can um, do it I anywhere. mean, those are super marginal places to grow anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can you can do it anywhere. Um, yeah, so I kind of do see that happening in New Zealand, which I think is more awesome. and more producers going more towards. producers and more people kind of doing smaller things. Like yeah. I think we're what like realistically thirty years into the modern New Zealand. Yeah, thirty-five maybe. Um, New Zealand wine industry, and it makes sense that now would be the time that there's a group of people who are qualified, young, and interested in doing things there just seems in to be new and unique in different ways. Like we, we so have much. no idea what New Zealand wine will be in 50 years. No, certainly Or even 15 years. Even like, 15 there's years. so much change happening right now, yeah. which is which is really exciting. And yeah. obviously, for some people, for some producers, that's really really challenging. Yeah. But then. Yeah, that's also really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I think all, I mean part of it as well. Like you were asking me earlier about um, the food scene in Paris and stuff when I was there, food and wine scene, and I think that's something that happened during the period I was there. So from 2009 and a bit before that, I guess, um, through to 2016, um, the style of restaurants really changed. Now it might have been because of the financial crisis. Um, so basically, all artifice and pretense got stripped out of what was considered what were considered the best restaurants in Paris because people couldn't afford to pay for that stuff anymore and also cooks and, and um, people serving wine didn't want to pay for marketing and, and bullshit like and, they and wanted to pay they wanted to spend their money on stuff that tasted good on a plate or good in a glass and I think the natural wine movement came about at the same time and that's exactly it. it's transparent like you can see where the work is and where the hard work goes into and that's what you pay for. You're not paying for a big marketing campaign. It's, it's class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That, that, I mean, like, and that's. I guess that's one of the really exciting things about about what's happening in food and wine. Yeah. And be, and like all sorts of things here in New Zealand. Yeah. It's, it's Bud, all about look at Bud Burst and like how many of those producers have big marketing teams or anything? Have any marketing? None. Yeah. yeah. Any. And they're making the best wines in the country, right? Yeah. That's so. Yeah, super exciting. Awesome. Hey, so thank you for um, taking some time out on your Friday afternoon to talk. A pleasure. Pleasure. You have been um, listening to the Cultcast. Um, Go to cultwine.co.nz and use the code Cultcast for 10% off your next order. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much. Have a really lovely, busy evening. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Yeah.